This is Randy and Howard here again with the BAT Podcast. We're super excited to be here today with an extra special guest. We have Reeves Calloway here, uh, who needs no introduction from us. Uh, one of the greatest uh, auto tuners, builders, uh, and enthusiasts that we know. And we are super excited that he is part of the BAT community. He has commented and engaged with a few of the Callaway-oriented cars that have sold on BAT. Uh, and that has been really fun to see. And we've had several of our readers say, hey, if you're going to get people on the podcast, you got to get uh, Mr. Callaway himself there if you can. And so we're super excited to have him here today. Reeves, welcome. Thank you so much for that lead in, uh, <laughs> Randy. Um, I'll try to disabuse you of any admiration that you have for, for me or the product. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we got a few minutes to do that. So uh, we're ready for it. Um, yeah, that's no joke. That intro is no joke at all. We... Um, uh, all shot, you know, texts and emails around within the staff. I forget which car it was, if it was a actual Callaway Corvette or if it was some of the weirder, you know, Alphas and Volkswagens that had Callaway parts on them. Um, and somebody on our staff pinged me and said, Randy, you know, Reeves Callaway is commenting on this Callaway car. What on earth is going on? So we definitely want to get uh, your perspective of, yeah, maybe how you found BAT, how you heard that these Callaway cars were on the site and what made you dive in there. Hey, that's a that's a good uh, starting point because uh, at this point, after forty years of building these automobiles in conjunction with GM, um, we have about thirty-seven or eight hundred owners, uh, either present or, or or past, and a lot of those people maintain huge enthusiasm for the the brand and the experience, and they maintain it by participating and bring a trailer. Uh, because the, um, the audience knows so much about the details of these cars. And uh, I hear from the owners saying, hey, uh, here's a car that we never knew existed, or here's a car that uh, is a big conversation. So that's what got me involved in bring a trailer. But, but that was years ago. Um, <clears throat> Uh, today, uh, those little flags pop up that say, hey, there's a, uh, there's, there's a car that you could be interested in or comment on. And I love doing that stuff because there's no better way to get accurate information out there than to uh, feed the enthusiast audience. Uh, that's how it happens. Before uh, signing on with you, I, I took a look, and I think we've listed 35 or 40 uh, Callaway modified vehicles over the years. We got uh, definitely a lot of a lot of questions for you. Definitely going to talk about uh, Chevrolet and Corvette and, and that whole era. But I think I'd love to start uh, before Corvette. Randy touched on it. Uh, you modified some uh, what Alfa Romeo GTV6 Callaway Twin Turbo. I think some Chiracos uh, had some Callaway parts on them. So. I think we'd love to hear um, kind of how you got started and what those um, uh, early days were like with, with Alpha and VW and, and any number of other manufacturers you were working with. Well, great. Uh, thanks for bringing that up because, you know, this is one of those stories of uh, inventing something in the back of the house, in the garage, and having it mature to go for, from, from home garage uh, to uh, small industry. You know, that's been the trajectory of Callaway cars. And one of the reasons was that I was always in pursuit of a relationship with an original equipment manufacturer. Uh, we always were trying to elevate ourselves into a position of being the authorized way to get more power uh, or make a special model of the car. And all of those early cars that you mentioned, the, the Volkswagens, the, um, the early 924 Porsche, the BMWs, those were all in, uh, in an attempt to, to establish a relationship. And it was, it's very hard. You know, car companies are loath to want to have someone else work on their car. That, that's, you know, that's sort of tricky territory, very thin ice, right? Um, but one day, it's, it, if, you, if your stuff is okay and it's, it's good and reliable and warrantyable and emission compliant and all that, you can establish a relationship with an OE. And that's what happened when uh, Alfa Romeo called, Alfa Romeo North America took a very long walk 
on a short plank, I'm sure, <laughs> and said, hey, these guys, Callaway, know how to do low volume production, make decent horsepower, meet the reliability goals, and be emission compliant at the same time. Uh, and they needed a car that could compete with the uh, Maserati B-Turbo. Um, and like Jay Leno says, you know, the only thing on a Maserati B-Turbo that really worked was the clock. But um, no, it was true. Uh, imagine uh, trying to get 100 more horsepower out of an Alpha GTV6 and stand behind it from a reliability point of view, from a from an emission compliance point of view and from a support of the car in the field point of view. Um, and that's what they hired us to do. And we got ready in under 12 months, which was sort of record time. And uh, the cars were well received. The initial reviews were terrific because the car was a ball to drive. You know, it was a front engine, rear gearbox, um, 250 horsepower car instead of 150 horsepower. Uh, and it sounded great, you know, typical Italian exhaust note. And just at the moment where we got uh, the 30 or 35th car out the door in this, this very car-by-car uh, uh, car kind of uh, uh, assembly process, um, Alfa Romeo closed the doors in North America. They went home. 1986 or so was the collapse of Alfa North America. And we're all standing there in Connecticut producing this very cool little car, and now we are essentially twiddling our thumbs. You know, we were out of business, and we had, like I say, taken a long walk on a short plank to do this. But you know what happened? The, this proves my point that you're only as good as your last movie. One of those alphas wound up as part of the competitive set study at General Motors, at Black Lake, you know, at Milford Proving Grounds. And I got a call from Dave McClellan, then chief engineer, uh, who said, you know, we have this little alpha here that is a dead ringer performance-wise for a 1985 Corvette. It, zero to 60 is almost identical, quarter mile almost identical, uh, but it's half the displacement. How did you do that? Um, would you be interested in working on a twin turbo program with the Corvette. And of course, I, I, I should have had some fast talking answer all ready for him, but of course I didn't. And uh, that's, that's really how we got started with General Motors. It was their idea. And we decided to do a cooperative uh, build of a small number of twin turbo Corvettes. You know what the original number was supposed to be? No, what? <laughs> 25. Okay. General Motors Marketing came up with 25 cars would be sellable uh, to the entire worldwide market of high-performance buyers. Uh, and we said, really? 25? We were thinking much higher than that. And they said, no, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to say 25. So the first uh, cars rolled out the door. They were received pretty well by the press. And the orders started to roll in because Chevrolet was offering to sell the car for us. Uh, and there were hundreds, maybe even up to a thousand uh, back orders at that point. And uh, we quickly retooled for more than 25. We couldn't produce the cars fast enough. Um, so it just shows that even the very bright folks at GM uh, have real trouble when it comes to pick the number, you know? And then where did that end up heading, right? You say they wanted to commit for 25 and you had all these orders. I mean, were you able to ramp that and start producing those with them? Or did you spin that out and do it yourself? Or were the Callaway Corvettes all associated with them? There's, there's lots of questions that jump to mind. Oh, yeah, this was, this was a Chevrolet product. Yep. It was an RPO, a regular production option number. First time that ever that one of those had ever been assigned outside of the corporation. So that was a bit of a milestone. Uh, and don't forget, we were doubling the price of the automobile. You know, a, a Corvette in 1987 cost about $20,000 some dollars. And the option for the engine was another 
20,000 bucks because it was was that much work to do it. Um, So here we were selling a $50,000 Corvette in 1987. And uh, that's why, of course, the marketing department had a hard time picking the number because, you know, things like doubling the price of the car don't compute. Um, but yes, we, we quickly retooled, uh, we went, we got it up to 188 cars in the first year and 125 in the second year and a hundred and something. And I can't remember all exactly the numbers, but, uh, over the five year life of the, uh, the product, the L98 based car, uh, we made 509 of them. And the only reason that, that we stopped, frankly, was because the next generation, uh, the LT1 engine, uh, was not a good candidate for a big power increase. So we decided to draw a line through the, you know, the, the bookending of, of a model makes it uh, more desirable, I think. And after the initial success in 85, as you mentioned, around 87, 88, um, I guess doing some research, uh, Chevrolet, you know, wanted to do a very official uh, manufacturer contract with you to produce the 500 cars over a production run. Uh, When that occurred for you, did you say, wow, I've I've really arrived. Uh, I've got this contract in hand and uh, Callaway's on the map. Or were you running around with your hair on fire trying to figure out how you were actually going to deliver on it? Well, uh, let me back up because uh, one of the unique features or, or aspects about the relationship between Callaway and GM it was that there was never any contract. Um, this was an opportunity to work with, you know, the world's largest car maker with the world's smallest specialist <laughs> hunkered away in a workshop in Connecticut. Uh, and there was no contract and there never has been. This has always been a handshake. So here we are 40 years later, and we're still operating on a handshake. Um, And and look what's happened. You know, for all of us who love building special cars, modifying engines, and doing uh, high-performance work, uh, and what I've always wanted is the ability to uh, offer someone uh, a, a new level of performance, but still enjoy original equipment kind of reliability. Um, not some, don't offer somebody a science project, but offer them something that is really stunning in terms of power. I mean, if you get into a 1988 or 89 twin turbo Corvette uh, and go to wide open throttle for a moment in something like third gear, I almost guarantee you that you will lift the throttle at some point much earlier than you thought appropriate and say, you know what? I didn't really want to go that fast. <laughs> you know, it's a thrilling amount of acceleration that happens with five or 600 foot pounds of torque available, uh, especially given the traction limited nature of the size of tires on those cars. Um, but uh, that's why we never offer any of these things as do it yourself in installations. We don't offer kits. We were in the kit business back in the Volkswagen days, and we saw the problems of that. The problems were that the uh, the cars didn't all turn out the same. And what we were after is a real uh, reliable, accurate uh, execution uh, of every car being identical. So General Motors said to us one important thing in the beginning of the, of the association. They said, keep good records. So we immediately started to put all of the owner and build information into a database. And you know what? Today, that database exists on all the Callaway personnel telephones. So if you have a VIN number of a car that you're looking at at an auction or in a, in a lot or in a transaction, all we have to do is hear about it. We know the condition of the car, who's owned it over its old whole lifetime, what kind of warranty incidents it has had, um, uh, sort of a general indication of owner care. It's a fascinating dossier that happens because uh, a car can have many owners and a good owner can have many cars. So you wind up needing to build a relational database in order to keep track of 
those variables. Um, but today, the most valuable thing that we can offer the, the, uh, the Callaway buyer of a vintage car is that we, chances are, know its history. Yeah, that's very super interesting from a BAT perspective, because as you know, when we're listing these, we try to get as deep as we can on a lot of the history of them and where they've been. And there's claims made that sometimes are true and sometimes are not true out in the broader world. And we try to distill it down to what is actually happening and what is actually true. So uh, anyway, that gives me some thoughts about what we could do with you on uh, on future Callaway listings. Maybe there's some fun ways we can work together there. But all of that makes me think of, I mean, you're kind of getting into this era where I discovered Callaway. Um, and that mainly came from, you know, the what I would call sort of the magazine cover area. Mm-hmm. era. Right? I mean, the, the, your cars started to be on the, you know, 200 mile an hour shootout cover on road and track and on car and driver. And I'm sure those were, you know, enormous publicity boons for you and your name and your company. And were, so were those driven by GM and GMPR who wanted to get these special boutique products, low production products out there? Or were those you guys and your relationships trying to get, you know, Callaway cars to go up against, you know, the best of Europe and that sort of thing? You know, honestly, it was much more the men and women working in the Corvette group, which, as you know, is a much smaller subset of engineering. And they have autonomy and they have decision-making ability. And if there is goodness in a Corvette, it's because of the talent of those men and women, uh, sort of separate from the larger corporation. Um, But the... uh, the, you're absolutely right. Those top speed shootouts were a huge opportunity for exposure. Don't forget, we never advertised the automobile. Um, so our only road to uh, being understood or being looked at was through PR kind of events. But I'll tell you an interesting result of that was that um, the opportunity for going to win the top speed event, it was an annualized affair. You know, there was one of those contests every year, either with road and track or car and driver or any of the Corvette magazines. And uh, my complaint to to Dave McClellan at GM was, uh, look, it costs too much to build these top speed cars, especially if we do it on an experimental platform from GM, one of the X cars, uh, because those cars have to return to GM and go to the crusher. So we would lose the car as soon as it became famous, right? Um, so I said to him, look, here's an idea. Why don't we just build one car that can always win the event, but we won't let anyone know how fast it goes. So that's what happened. That was the, the genesis of the sledgehammer, a car that would always win the event, but you could roll it back into the garage and bring it out next year and have it win the event, but, but just by a little bit. That was the strategy. Very, yeah. yeah, but there was a lot more in the tank on those. You're implying that there, I mean, those could have been cranked up and, and, uh, you know, put yourself way out in front of the curve. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of the uh, sort of strategy that was going into it. It sounds mm-hmm. like, were you on site doing that sort of thing? Or were you controlling things from back at the, at the mothership? Or what was your role in those sort of uh, events and those decisions? My, my role was to lead the, uh, lead the experiment. You know, I was the driver and uh, the builder. So, uh the problem was you needed to test the car privately to find out ultimately how fast could it go. Before you handed the keys off to a journalist, you needed to know. Um, because don't forget, the objective was to only win by a little bit. Uh, hey, hey, it costs about a million dollars to build one of these top speed event cars. And the, the problem, as they started to go very fast as they started to go well over 200 miles an hour, was you were limited in the number of places where you could do that safely. 
Um, and one of them was the Transportation Research Center in Ohio. Uh, and if you've never seen a seven and a half mile oval, uh, there are people inside the middle of the oval running farms that I'm sure they don't know they're surrounded by an oval. I mean, it's that big. Um, I mean, this is these are test tracks where the corners are neutral at 150. So you can go hands off into the into the banking at, at 150 and you don't need any steering input at all. Um, but the, the trouble was we got found out. Somebody leaked how fast the car would go. And then it appeared on all the covers of the magazines, 254.76 miles an hour. And uh, um, you know what happened? Nobody ever showed up for a top speed event test again. <laughs> Porsche, that was Ferrari, nobody. They all stayed home. The magazines were all pissed. And well, that's a sign of a uh, victory, perhaps. Uh, I, I would love to know. I mean, w whenever you you modify a car to de to the degree you guys were doing, there are obviously a number of you know considerations to to manage that additional power, um, specifically tires and brakes. So I'd love to know: did, did you become very friendly with the executives at Goodyear when you were, or, or, or another manufacturer, as you contemplated how to put it all put it all together? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because the key to being able to go fast is the tire. And nobody should attempt to do any of that business without having a real tire company support. So Goodyear was the OE supplier to Corvette in those years. And uh, they didn't want anybody else on the car. And frankly, we needed a tire that looked exactly like a Goodyear Gatorback, but had a 300 mile an hour kind of safety margin. So they built that tire. They built eight of them. And they assigned a different person to each one of the eight. And that guy had a small chain on his wrist that was tied to the tire. I'm exaggerating. Uh, but they sure didn't want anybody to see what that tire was all about. So the, the tires were very closely guarded. The minute they ran on the car, uh, when the day's testing was over, they took the tires off and covered them up and put them away. Uh, uh, but that just shows you how much of a key to going fast they were. They did a great job. We never had a single tire problem. Um, and uh, they confided in us uh, afterwards that they had spent a million bucks building those eight tires. So, so where did these uh, sort of records and these numbers, I mean, obviously these top speed runs are really amazing and, and there's a ton of publicity. So does that turn into orders for more GM product or where, I mean, you, like I said, that's when I discovered your name. I feel like your, your name was all over everywhere. The Coway Corvettes just exploded onto the scene over those years where they were winning these shootouts. But what, what was the result for that? Was the result of that, great for you in terms of new opportunity and volume or what did it turn into? You know, I'm not sure if we could ever know uh, how much those efforts uh, helped the sales of the cars because the country was headed into a recession uh, from about 89 onwards. Things were not very rosy economically. Uh, and then there were fuel considerations and there was... Uh, Boy, um, it was not easy to sell cars that were getting progressively more expensive, especially if they started out as Corvettes. You know, that was a little bit of a handicap from a from a price point uh, of view. I mean, here we were, we were delivering, uh, you know, some pretty exquisite technology uh, that just by its nature costs a lot to do. You know, expensive materials and hot side components difficult packaging uh, and required durability, uh, even fuel economy uh, and price uh, figured into the whole equation. So um, I think the pride that we have in looking back on all of those is that we built those as best as they could be built. Uh, 
price was not a consideration. Uh, th this was uh, make it as perfect as you can make it, and someone will appreciate that. So that, that's what those cars represented. A high watermark for us and, and I hope for GM. That's very interesting. I think our, our audience would love to know, have, have uh, Corvettes always been near and dear to your heart? What were you uh, playing with back in the 1960s and 1970s that kind of led to all this? You know, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, we didn't know anything about Corvettes until Dave McClellan said, hey, take a look at this car. Um, our admiration from an engineering point of view was much more aimed at folks like Porsche, Mercedes, uh, Audi, Volkswagen, uh, and, and that's who we were trying to establish OE relationships with. Um, but Dave McClellan was a brilliant uh, uh, organizer of the C4 version of the Corvettes, and they set the tone for what we have today. Uh, you know, if, if the C4, C5, 6, and 7 weren't as great incremental steps as they have been, the C8 would not be as great an automobile as it is. And it truly is a great automobile. You know, at this point in our career, we've worked for every car manufacturer on the planet, except the Koreans. And I can tell you that my experience in seeing behind the curtain and uh, having a, uh, an ability to drive first article automobiles from Porsche, Ferrari, Audi, Mercedes, um, you very quickly know when you have a good automobile under you. Uh, and, and I can tell you that the C8 is the leader of my personal opinion of the pack. Uh, to have that car roll out in the condition that it has, at the price that it has, uh, and the readiness that it has in terms of maturity, uh, I think Taj... Uh, Yekter and his group uh, should go down as uh, an exemplary uh, way to do this, especially considering the price point. You know, our race shop in Germany, where we build the GT3 cars for, for GM, um, is in the same town as Audi. And across the street is Porsche at, at Weissach. And down the road is Mercedes. So the joke is that there's something in the water because, you know, hey, without a doubt, the best race cars in the world are built in that corner of the world. You cannot build a finer race car than Mercedes builds. And Porsche has been, you know, showing the way for a lifetime. And, and Audi has such extraordinary engineering resources. Um, when you're trying to stack yourself up against who's who in the car world, those are your competitors right there. So the fact that the Corvette GT3 car, the one that we homologate for GM, uh, manages to win races against all three of those brands, I think that's our proudest moment. I think that's amazing. And honestly, I didn't know too much about that program or where it, that it's located in Germany and all those sorts of things. Is that under the... Callaway Racing Banner or the GM Racing Banner? Or what is that? Uh, tell people a little bit about uh, your involvement there. Has that been a multi-year yeah. thing or is that since the since the rear uh, or mid-engine layout? Oh, no, this is our 15th year of, of doing that. Um, you know, the problem with sports car racing has always been trying to achieve parity between brands, um, especially if they have disparate philosophy about what kind of car do they want to build? How on earth do you make them equal on the racetrack? Well, this class called GT3 has done that because uh, the top 30 cars in the race next weekend at Oschersleben, I guarantee you they're all going to qualify within the same second. 30 cars, six different brands, eight different brands, all qualifying within the same second. That's never happened before. And it leads to the world's toughest competition in GT racing. Uh, and if you haven't seen them on TV, go to gtmasters.com and uh, hang on to your socks. What it does is it emphasizes driver talent because all the cars are dead equal. Um, but boy, is it fun 
to uh, explore the allegiance of the Porsche owner, the Audi owner, the, the Mercedes fan, uh, the, the Lamborghini guys, the Bentley guys, uh, and see who can win one of these races. It is really tough going. We have won the championship four times in 10 years. And my, my confidential comment is if you really want to piss the Germans off, beat them with an American car. <laughs> Especially since the American car was, uh, was uh, produced right in Germany in, in their backyard. You want to hear a funny story? You may or may not want to put it in the podcast, your choice. But uh, it's, do you know when qualifying happens at Le Mans? It's, it's at midnight. It's, that's when qualifying starts. You have two hours. So uh, I think this is 94 or 5, our first or second time when we entered Le Mans with a Corvette. Um, and we're standing right next to the Porsche motorhome as the clock is winding down. And Porsche's at the top. Porsche has got the pole position in the GT2 class. And all of a sudden, the Corvette pops up to the top. Boris said is driving. It's his first time at Le Mans. He puts the car on the pole in the last like 10 seconds of qualifying by a big margin. I mean, by two or three seconds. So I'm standing at the door of the Porsche race control motorhome. And here's Dr. Singer, Norbert Singer. And, uh, and uh, Jürgen Bart, the head of competition for Porsche. And I hear Singer hit the roof and he yells at Bart. He says, Herr Doctor, Herr Doctor, was ist this Callaway Scheiß trick? Which means, what, what, what is this dirty trick, Callaway? Yeah. And Barth sort of thinks for a minute and very quickly he says, Herr Doctor, das ist ein richtiger deutscher Rennwagen. This is a real German race car <laughs> because the Corvette was made in Leingarten, right? So he sort of saved his ass by, by saying that. But, hey, you can't write this stuff, you know? You cannot make it up. Wow, no, that, that's fascinating. I, I, I didn't realize you were at Le Mans in the mid-90s. That was obviously a really interesting uh, time in motorsports. And, you know, you mentioned you guys were there. Porsche was there. I think that was when McLaren had the um, F1 Longtail GTR that was the year you were there. What was what was that like to be in the hot pit and in the mix uh, it, it, at Le Mans in those days? Well, we were a contender for uh, winning the class, which had typically been dominated by Porsche. Don't forget, that was the GT2 class. Um, McLaren would have, uh, in the year that McLaren was there and won, they were uh, winning for the overall. So we were... We were not competing directly against McLaren. Um, boy, there is a lot to learn about international motor racing. You know, the selection of drivers, the, the your your relationship with the ACO. Um, uh, I, I I'm so grateful for that experience. That was a terrific thing. It, it almost killed. It, you know, racing 24 hour races almost kills the teams. You know, it's so hard and there's so much sustained effort over so many months to just arrive uh, ready to race a 24-hour race. So I have a lot of respect for anybody who actually pulls that off. Uh, you know, we, we had 10, en uh, 10 entries at Le Mans uh, among cars that we would build and sell to race teams. Um, uh, and it, it's, uh, hey... If you, if you say that you're going to make a great automobile, go to Le Mans, campaign it, and see how you do against the other folks in your class. That's the real, uh, you know, what, what do you call it? That's the badge of courage that you need. That's why Jaguar uh, XK150 says on its badge, you know, winner, Le Mans, 52, 53, 54. Um, you can't, you can't uh, do better than get that experience into your automobile. 
That's some awesome stories. I love hearing about all that. I, I want to jump uh, a little bit to present day and what sort of activities you guys have and what's going on. I know it sounds like you still have the handshake deal with GM and are working on their product. Uh, are you doing exclusively GM work these days? Or I mean, you, you mentioned you've worked with almost every manufacturer under the sun. Is uh, is uh, What is going on at your operation and, and what is your involvement in it? When you uh, start to become heavily allied with a brand, you sort of lose the opportunity to work for other people. Um, so once we became known as a GM house, then other opportunities disappeared. But the, the good news was because of the way uh, General Motors makes automobiles, anything with the 6.2 liter V8 in it became a sort of home base. It's Corvette, it's Camaro, it's Suburbans, it's Silverados. It even goes uh, down into the Cadillac CTSV range. So that automatically broadened out our product line. And thank goodness that it did because you know, if you're going to make a specialist version of the Corvette and you do really well, you might sell two or 300 of those a year. But if you make a, a really great version of the Silverado, there's a chance to sell a thousand plus of those. Um, so that's, that's what we went. Uh, that's why we went sort of broad reach in our uh, uh, product line for, for GM. And, that, that's, uh, that's the basis of uh, really all of our road car preparations is uh, uh, anything that has the 6.2 liter V8 in it. Um, the, the, the hard part, the bogey of being in that business is that you have to uh, stand behind the vehicle with a very strong warranty. It has to not degrade fuel economy it has to be emission compliant for its entire lifetime, and it has to meet all of the durability bogies. Um, you know, like the supercharger that goes on the car has to have a hundred thousand mile durability with no maintenance. And, and all of those requirements you just listed to, to make a, a modern day car, would you say that um, the world was was very different back in the late '80s when you did the initial program with, with Corvette? Um, how, how has that evolved over the, over the last few decades? I guess my comment would be that things have become more stringent and certainly more enforceable. And the consequences of not doing a good job in the area of warranty or fuel mileage or, or maintenance or emission compliance, those, those, the consequences of uh, screwing that up are very costly. So, you know, we, we have a, a warranty system that allows... The, the owner to, to see the car as transparent in the GM system. Normally, if you modify a GM car and go into a dealer, uh, the warranty is blocked because you, or they knew that you modified the vehicle. Um, in, in our case, uh, the warranty is, is not blocked. Um, and it's treated just like a, a normal car. If there's any kind of discussion about whose problem this is, uh, we have... Uh, a warranty administrator at GM. We meet with them every quarter. And believe me, we go uh, through every warranty incident that may be of concern. But you know what's interesting? Here's something that, that uh, only became apparent to me after about 20 years of doing this. If you look at the warranty incident for the normal car, and then the warranty incident for the high-performance version of the car, and lay the two over each other, you know what the result is? The result is that we cannot see a difference. We and GM cannot see a difference between the modified car and the standard car. It's, the, it's, it's within, you know, experimental error, as they say. But those two lines are essentially coincident. And, uh, you know, Mark Royce called me on the carpet one day and and said, how come we validate these cars at 400 horsepower? You're putting them out the door at 700 horsepower. How come they aren't all dead on the side of the road? <laughs> and I said, well, here's a little secret. The man who spends the extra money for this version of the car is perhaps your best customer. He is certainly not a warranty abuser. 
He is going to take the best possible care. This car is his baby. And, and hey, everybody that bring a trailer knows that. You know, you may find one wild man in a bunch, but in general, you're going to have people who are respectful of the automobile. And uh, I think that that customer needs to be sought out and, and rewarded. Uh, General Motors should harvest those people and say, this is our guy. We, we're going to sell him a Suburban in addition to his Corvette. You know? Can you tell us uh, any story about the development of all those GM cars where it, was there any times when you didn't see eye to eye with them? They wanted more power than you were willing to practically give a customer or you wanted more and they said, no, we can't, you know, we'll, we'll people will be flying off the road left and right. Or when, when were you not <laughs> what, uh, what you guys want to be offering? You know, I'm only laughing because um, there were so few conversations about anything like that. Those guys have their hands full with a whole litany of problems and responsibilities. Um, there, no one is telling us what to do. They're relying on us using some good sense. I mean, after all, this is sort of a control group, isn't it? So it's nice to see what happens in the extremes. Uh, and I think that information filters back to the corporation, just like it filters back from a race program. Um, but no, there was never any, don't do this or be careful of this. There might be a little warning like, gee, we have a problem with, uh, with alternators on the line, you know, for some series of cars, uh, little little helpful hints like that, but but nothing about overall, uh, you know, don't give it too much power or anything like that. No, Interesting. You've mentioned uh, a number of cars you've um, you've developed. You mentioned the Sledgehammer, which is kind of the top of the heap. Uh, there was the Supernatural, a number of other Callaway Turbo modified cars. Um, I'd love to know which uh, of all the cars you've been involved with stand out to you uh, uh, in the present day as being your favorite or um, uh, the most memorable for one for one reason or another. Uh, sure, that that's an interesting take because um, it's all it's not always the biggest and baddest uh, that that winds up deserving mention. You know, I, I look back over things like uh, doing the uh, Range Rover program for uh, for Charlie Hughes at Range Rover and making the most powerful version of Range Rovers ever sold. This was in 1999. Um, and we're not talking about massive power here. We're talking about 235 horsepower <laughs> in a 6,000 pound car. Uh, but you know what? That's the car that I drive every day. I still have a 1999 Callaway Range Rover uh, as a sort of a high watermark of Range Roverism. Um, the other one that stands out is the, do you remember the Mazda Speed Proteges from 2003? I do remember those. I was on your website and I was like, what on earth are there Mazda Speed cars <laughs> on the Callaway side? I didn't know you did anything with Mazda Speed, but what's with the Protege? Well, we did the whole Mazda Speed program for Mazda and we supplied the turbochargers, the intercoolers, the development package, the calibration software, uh, the intercooling, uh, and we sent all of those pieces to the seven different ports of importation where they were installed by people who would normally be putting on seat covers and uh, changing out interiors, you know? And we trained them all on how to do these things. Um, the, the first year order was for something like 2,500 sets of these components. And they so quickly got uh, uh, the enthusiast market enlisted that the order was doubled. So now we had to make 5,000 of these things. And before the program was shut down for model change, uh, we did another 2,100. So about 6,800 of these little Mazda Speed proteges were uh, flying around out there, and they were really fun because you know they were they were powerful, 
in a hot hatchback kind of way, and they were not expensive, you know. And you you couldn't break one. I don't. We tried. We we couldn't break them. <laughs> wow, torque steer at the max. It sounds like. You know, here's a good example. Uh, we asked Mazda what was the the weak link in the chain. What was going to break first if we made too much power? And they said uh, the main shaft in the transmission, in the gearbox. They said, don't go over 170 foot-pounds because it will break after that. And so we thought about it for a few minutes. And, you know, 170 foot-pounds at 5,250 RPM is 170 horsepower, right? But we said, well, how about if we make 170 foot-pounds at like 7,000 RPM? <laughs> and they said, that's fine. It's not going to break. So we could make 170 foot-pounds anywhere in the RPM range. Uh, we, we didn't wind up releasing that for production. But uh, it, that's, it, isn't it funny that a mechanical specification of a component like that will determine the whole market positioning of the automobile? Okay, so a lot of people listening uh, to this, uh, a question I'm sure they have is, what is the reliability and maintenance maintenance needs on your Callaway 99 Range Rover? Let's hear it. Oh, you don't want to hear that. You don't <laughs> want to hear that. <laughs> those, those cars were born in the garage, and I don't think that they will ever successfully extract themselves from the garage. Um, you know, it's just that those cars will nickel and dime you to death. I guess it helps if you have Callaway Engineering Limited behind you running, uh, you know, the shop to uh, take care of your Callaway Range Rover. Well, the good news is that the Callaway parts are not the failure point. It's the other traditional stuff, you know. Everything else. Yeah, the the AC, the electronics, the CV joints, you know. Don't get me started, please. So it may not be uh, Land Rover or Range Rover, but I, th- I thought it'd be interesting. I mean, your your approach has always been so engineering driven, and I love that. I've always I've always respected and and followed that. Um, and who else out there, present day, do you have respect for from an engineering approach perspective? Like who's who's doing interesting stuff right now? Do you think either in uh, your motorsport circles or in in production and tuning cars? Oh. Um... That's easy. Uh, my hat goes off to Gordon Murray. Um, I mean, talk about admiration, experience, skill set, logic, uh, and and good reasoning power. Um, Doctor Murphy uh, is is our guy. Um, you know, I'm an engine design guy, so uh, my my admiration goes towards the great engine designers Mario Elian from Ilmore, uh, Gordon Murray, Paul Roche at BMW, who's no longer with us, um, Hans Metzger at Porsche. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a sort of a who's who list of engine designers. My great engine designer, Hans Herman, uh, responsible for the, the Callaway HH Indy engine, is, uh, is certainly in that category as well. Um, it's fascinating to hear those names and, and you know, where those people are and what the, the impact that they have had um, and then have you know, the Callaway name in there amongst those. You must be very proud of what you've built over the years and uh, obviously all the effort that you've put forth and all these models. I mean, we can keep going on all the different models that you've touched from a protege transmission main shaft concern <laughs> you know, to all the way, you know, on the grid uh, at the pole uh, at the 24 hours. So uh, just unbelievable variety and, and again, engineering driven perspective from you. And then, yeah, the fact that you're involved and, and care about what's going on at BAT and, and the, the future Callaway cars that we will list. We just really appreciate you uh, being involved with our community that we have built and the way people are listing cars. It's really invigorating and helpful to see that you're in the community and on the website. Well, Randy, the, re- the real truth is it's hard to get accurate information 
uh, you know, the, the automotive world is uh, contaminated by uh, inaccuracy and uh, embellishment. Uh, and it's always great to have a chance to to bring it back to, you know, uh, first article uh, from the people in your audience who know what they're talking about. And I'm so amazed that there are so many people out there who really do know what they're talking about. Uh, they're not vapid comments. They're, they're genuinely applicable. Um, and I don't mean just about the Callaway stuff. I mean about stuff in general. I, I really enjoy, you know, the great difference between me and uh, the other uh, car builders of history. I was at an auction the other day and uh, I introduced myself to the crowd and I said, you know, I have a huge differentiator between myself and the cars that we build and the cars that you're surrounded with here, everything from, you know, Delahaye to Duesenberg. I said, uh, I'm sure that I wouldn't be out of line if I pointed out that I'm the only one of the car builders in this room who's still alive. <laughs> so, yes, it is nice to be part of uh, that, that legacy. Um, I, I hope that we're able to maintain that and, and wind up building uh, some really great automobiles in the future. Fantastic. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to talk about cars and BAT and history and sort of the Callaway legacy. So we will look for you on the website and uh, look to do more with listing more Callaway cars. Well, Randy, Howard, uh, I think this is sort of a continuing story. So I would be open for uh, round two anytime that you are. Fantastic. We'll do that. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you next time. Okay, man. Mm -hmm.